Welcome. I am so proud of you guys and your families for choosing to come to church Thanksgiving weekend, way to prioritize what really matters. And uh, welcome Hebron, welcome online, welcome Jasper County Jail and DeMont Wheatfield. It is great to be here with you guys. And you know, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving celebration. We did. On Monday, we were going to have all the staff and their families over, and our staff has been fruitful and multiplied. I think our church operates with like 11 FTE, but uh, we were going to have 41 over to our house. And I told my wife, hey, it's no big deal. You know what I mean? Like, you're a great cook. You can do this. I'm not asking for that much. And I said, I promise I'll be home early to help Okay, so we were having them over at 5.45, and I made it by 5.40. And I said, honey, well, come on, I'm home early. And she was like, and then you die. No, just kidding. It was great. She was full of grace and mercy and loving kindness. And uh, yeah, I was grateful for that. But welcome to the fourth week of our More Than Tinders series. It's all about finding a relationship that lasts, a flame that lasts. Falling in love is easy. Making new friends is easy. Getting a family is easy. But staying friends, staying family, and staying in love, that's, that's the real trick. This series is all about learning how to do that, and the reason is pretty clear. Jesus says that the mark of a Christian is our love for one another. That's how you know you're a Christian. So if your life is marked by, like, labeling people who you disagree with as evil, dehumanizing people, if you, like, kind of change all your relationships every five, ten years, um, Jesus says, hey, there's, there's something wrong. Like, you might not get what Christianity is about, because Christianity, at its core, is about loving people really well. Also, even if you're not a Christian, it turns out that the, one of the biggest indicators of life satisfaction, um, it's not related to health or wealth or your job, it's related to the quality and durability of our relationships. Now, um, we've just gotten to, through three weeks of expectations versus desires, and uh, I'm not bringing the boxes back out because I'm kind of sick of those boxes. If I have to pull up that nightgown one more time and make a joke and whatever, and all you guys are like, thank God, like, this is good. Those jokes, they were the same literally every week, Pastor. Did you know that? I was like, yeah, I did. Okay, it's just, it's what we did. But um, some of my favorite stuff on relationships was in those last three weeks. I specifically liked week two. I'd encourage you to go and check those out. But this week, I want to talk about finding contentment in our relationships. If you struggle with a lack of contentment, I mean, you've got relationships and they're good, but in your heart, you're just sitting there wondering, I mean, is there more? Like, is there supposed to be more? I still feel kind of empty inside. That's what this week is about. It's about finding contentment and meaning and joy and satisfaction with the people that God's placed in your life. And to do that, we have our usual formula. We're going to tell a story, look at some Bible, make some points, and then we're given a challenge. So if you want relationships that fill you with connection and contentment, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to like this message because it will show you a path to contentment in your relationships. And right off the bat, I want to make my fundamental point. It's a big deal. I think relational discontentment comes from a lack of leadership and direction in our relationships. And uh, leadership today, in the way that I'm using it, is different than headship. I think the Bible is really clear about the role of men and women and what headship is. A pretty traditional perspective there. But I think anyone in the context of leadership and love today that I'm talking about, it, anyone can be a part of leading a relationship back to health. And uh, we've all had frustrating places in our life that lack leadership and direction. You know, places where you don't get anywhere. Um, our church was part of a denomination for 128 years. And for uh, the last 46 years, our church has been debating the same issue. Like the, nom or the, uh, the agenda of our big meeting, General Synod, that happens every two years, has basically had the same issue on it for 46 years. And that's frustrating because every two years, hundreds of pastors and elders and elderly pastors fly out to debate and talk about the same issue for three days. 
And if you've been debating the same issue for 46 years, this is a little frustrating. You know what I mean? It's a lack of leadership and direction. All of us have had classes in high school and in college. We're on the last day. You know, you've been doing this class whole semester, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, paid a bunch of money for it, and at the end of it, you're like, so what did we learn? Like, I'm not even sure I know my professor's name. Like, what was the point of this? We just went to this thing, and it's like, what, what just happened? You know, for the whole semester. Sometimes you have a boss at work that just loves to call meetings. And every week, for an hour, that's 52 hours a year, you go to this meeting, and it's like, I'm pretty sure that he just loves to hear the sound of his own voice. I have never been called upon. I've never learned something or contributed anything in these meetings. What are we doing? It's infuriating, isn't it? It's a lack of leadership and direction. Sometimes, some of us, you know, we've got this job, and we show up and do, like, actually nothing. You know, you get up at 4 a.m., and you drive your mill car to the mill on the mill highway. You, you post a snap of driving 135 miles an hour because we can do that on the mill because we're the only ones here, and look at this. Look how fast I got my Saturn going, you know. And you drive there, and you sit there for 12 hours, and your line's down, so you just sit in the break room for 12 hours. And then you walk past the commons to a dirty parking lot, and the highlight of your day was that you saw a coyote. And then you drive home like you did nothing all day long. It's a lack of leadership and direction. Sometimes at work or at school, you have a group project. You ever have a group project where you get around in a circle and you're like all trying really hard to sound smart but then also not have to take on real responsibility? It's like, yeah, that's really interesting. That's a great point. So who wants to do this? Not me, you know, please. And it's just really frustrating because it's a lack of leadership and direction. And here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. I believe relational discontentment comes from a lack of leadership and direction. Nothing makes you emptier than doing nothing. And there's a lot of relationships. The reason we don't feel content, the reason we feel empty inside is really we just get together and do nothing. Every once in a while you experience a great leader. I don't know if you ever had this in life. I've had some great leaders in my life. Leader that inspires you, brings direction to your life. I had a leader in high school. His name was Paul Christensen, Mr. Christensen. This man made English come alive. English, for crying out loud, I hated English. Prepositions and nouns and adverbs and diagramming sentences. It was the worst. And Mr. Christensen came, and he was a tough grader. He was a challenging teacher, but everybody loved him. He spoke at our graduation. I actually pulled up his speech this last week. I pulled it up on YouTube, and it was, like, so good. I forgot how great this teacher was. He took students who had traditionally been terrible students, and he made them great. He took gifted students, and he expanded their consciousness. I mean, he was amazing. He was an amazing, inspiring leader. Sometimes you have a boss at work that's more than a boss. You have a leader, you know, a leader that inspires you. And for once in your life, you actually believe in what you're doing. And it doesn't matter if you're selling cars or digging holes or selling insurance or building houses. When you have a boss that is more than a boss but a leader, you're not just showing up. You are a part of this big story, and it feels fantastic. What I'm describing is the difference that leadership can make. Some of you have experienced it. It's amazing and it's powerful. I'd much rather get paid very little and work in a place that had great leadership than get paid a lot and have really bad leadership. And I think this lack of leadership and direction, I mean, we can see it in a lot of contexts in our life. A lot of us have experienced it. It's like, oh, I wish this place was a lot better. You know where else this lack of leadership hurts us? Is in our relationships, our personal relationships. And I think one of the big reasons personal relationships struggle is that we don't really have leadership and direction, and the problem with that is you end up doing nothing, and nothing makes you feel emptier and less content than doing nothing with our family, friends, spouses, and otherwise. Some of us, we've been doing nothing for like the last 40 years. 
and we're just chilling together, and we're not doing a whole lot, and, you know, you remember in high school, senior year, where you kind of done everything, and you stopped learning because it was high school, senior year, and you start to get a little squirrely? You know, you've done all your pranks. You brought the cow into the school, and you moved the teacher's car onto blocks, and, you know, you lit the bags of dog poop on fire, and you toilet papered and did the stuff and whatever else, and you just get squirrely. It's like, what's the point? Why are we here? You start acting out. I think this is why marriages struggle. It's the same, same thing. It's senioritis. This is why a lot of extended family gatherings are rough. We get a little squirrely. There's a lack of direction and meaningfulness in our relationships. I remember when I was a little bit younger, there was this game that came out for the Nintendo 64 called Bond Goldeneye. Oh my goodness, it had a 3D graphic engine, and it was amazing. We used to play, and with, with a Nintendo 64, you could do four controllers at once, split screen, right? And we would tape cardboard on the screen so you couldn't cheat and be a screen peeker. And we would play in my friend Chris's house for like six hours straight. You remember when you get done? Playing video games for like six hours, you felt so dirty you had to take a shower. It was like, oh, I feel so depressed. I want to die, you know? And here's the thing. It was so fun. It was Bond Goldeneye. I mean, this is the pinnacle of video game excellence. This began a whole new genre of first-person shooters. I mean, it was amazing, but it was awful because nothing makes you feel emptier than doing nothing. And so many of us, that's what we're doing is nothing. I mean, some of us, you reach this place with your spouses, you know, you fall in love and you get married. And you're mad crazy in love. I mean, you love each other so much. And you have all these dreams. And you have some kids. And you build some houses. And you get your 10 acres. And you build your dream home. And then you build your, your, you know, your toy shed, also known as a pole barn. And finally you have it. And you put your Can-Am side by side in it. And it's amazing. And then you hurt your back. So you spend all your time just polishing your toys that you can't ride now. And you're out there. And your spouse is like, what are you doing out there? And it's like, honey, I'm taking care of my stuff. I'm working on things. I'm buying things. And someday I'll be able to use it. It's like, no, you won't. You won't. You won't ever. Your back is done like your toes, right? And you reach this place in your life where you realize that. But you just, you can't walk into your home because you look down the hallway of the next 40 years together. And you can already see what every day looks like. And you're at this place where you're like, what's the point? Nothing makes you feel emptier than doing nothing. I mean, you're just not content. You have a great life, and you're not content. It's like, I'm going to take my wife on a date every Friday, and she's getting a motor mouth about herself for two hours. I will say nothing. I might as well just bring a bobblehead of me. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, I could bring a mirror. It would be more animated than I'm just going to think about spaceships and what I would do if ninjas broke into this restaurant and how I would defend myself. It's a lack of leadership and direction with our extended families. You take a vacation, travel across the state, sometimes even the country, and you hang out, and you get together, and immediately it's the same stories, and it's like, I mean, we talked about this at, you know, Easter. We're going to tell the same story again at Thanksgiving? Okay, all right, okay, I know the story, and then, you know, some nostalgia and whatever, and you immediately start fighting with your brother and sister, even though you're a grown man, and then you reach this place where you're like, what is, what is the point? You are one day into a three-day marathon of family interaction, and you're tapped out. Or sometimes it's just three hours, and you're an hour into a three-hour-long Thanksgiving dinner, and you're like, tink, 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 tink. I don't know what to do. And finally, thank God, the Cowboys and the Lions are having their Thanksgiving Day game. I don't care about football. I don't care about the Lions. I don't care about the Cowboys. But today, I'm really interested in who's going to get one of the six turkey legs on that crazy mutant turkey they give away at the end of the game that has six legs. Why does it have six legs? right? But that's what you do because it's like, thank God I'm out of ammo to talk with my family. I need a little break. It's emptiness. It's a lack of contentment because nothing makes you feel emptier than doing nothing. I would bet that there's a lot of us here today who are full of Thanksgiving dinner, but empty in our hearts. There's a lot of us who are around a lot of people that we love, but we, we still don't feel very good. Why is it? 
Is this all there is? How do we make this go away? And people respond in, in one of three ways. One of three ways, okay? There's three different responses that I generally see to this. Number one, just ignore the problem. This is the Dutch way to handle it. You just take all that stuff and you sweep it under the rug, okay? And then you wrap that rug up and you throw it into a volcano and you never talk about it. And once every 10 years, that volcano erupts over everybody and the most vile, horrible, hot lava is spilled over our relationships and we're all scarred and burned. And then we get together six weeks later and pretend like it never happened. It's the Dutch way, right? Don't talk about it. It's fine. It's good. This is as good it gets as it gets. Ignore it. Then there are some relationships where people try to lead poorly. Everybody tries to lead. All chiefs, no Indians, very bad. It is like I'm sitting in a house with a CNN anchor and a Fox News anchor talking, and it's like, this is scary. This is very stressful. I mean, some of our family gatherings, it is like you are in the maternity ward at St. Anthony's, and there's 11 women giving birth at the same time in the same room, and it's like, ah, I'm very stressed out. I need to go be by myself for a year before I can handle this again. You know, you get to your car, it's like, oh my goodness, did anyone die? Is anybody alive? What happened? Right? And that's our family. Yeah, it's just, yeah, we're just getting along. That's how we interact. It's like, no, that's how, that's how people die, you know? And then sometimes you have a family that has a truly great leader. Where you spend time together, and it is meaningful. I mean, you feel life. Your family is a fountain of life. You get together, and there is purpose, and there is direction, and there is vision, and there is hope, and you cannot wait to see each other again. And when relationships have a great leader, great things happen. What makes Foxhole Buddies great friends? Think about this with me for a second. You take a white dude from rural Arkansas, voted Republican every day of his life, and you take a black man from Chicago, Voted Democrat every day of his life. Nothing in common with each other. Different opinions, different preferences. Diametrically opposed to one another. And they spend a week in a foxhole in Fallujah and they're friends for life. Sociologists say foxhole buddies have some of the deepest bonds of anyone in the human experience. Why? Because they shared a common direction, goal, and set of leadership. It's interesting what that can do for our relationships, isn't it? God actually shows us how to do it, Right? in the Bible. Question for you today. What made Jesus so impactful? People speculate about a lot of different things here. Some people are like, well, uh, pastor, it's because uh, Jesus, Jesus is God. That's why he was so impactful. I'd say you're absolutely right. That is, that is a big deal. Some people say, well, no, but, uh, you know, because he was God, he could do the miracles, you know. I mean, it's pretty cool. And I'd say, I'd agree with you, but miracles, miracles, I mean, it's just meeting somebody's physical needs, you know, it's medical, um, like, like food. Jesus did a lot of food miracles, you know, healing people, whatever. And I think money can do a lot of similar things, right? I mean, money can meet people's physical needs. Does money buy contentment and happiness in the long term? Well, no, you know, and Jesus' miracles, when you look at what really made an impact in his life, well, I don't think it was miracles. A lot of people say, well, uh, pastor, it's because of how loving he was. He was very loving. And this one's kind of interesting because he was very fun and funny. He was very interesting. He had a lot of friends. He showed great compassion to people in difficult situations, for sure. But uh, when you look at his actual words, he was not super ooey-gooey and loving in the sense that we think of it today. Like, he was, he was kind of harsh. What God is, I think, is an amazing, directional, loving leader. The Hebrew word, rausch, which is not referring to a supercharger, it actually can be translated directly as spirit of God or leader. Wow. Like leadership. Like God's name, spirit of God or leadership, sometimes translated. I think that our understanding 
of God and of love is misconstrued in the modern world. The, the Greeks, the, the ancient Greek language, Koine Greek, had 11 different words, which are all translated as love today. Four of those words in Greek that are used for love are used in the Bible. And in English, they're all just translated as love. Because in English, we have a really extremely clumsy language when it comes to describing emotions, and specifically the concept of love. Do you want to know why a lot of American teenagers are really confused by love? Is we don't have the words to describe it. I mean, this concept of, of love in English is so broad that it almost means nothing, right? The Greeks had 11 different words to describe this one word in English that is called love. And each of those 11 words referred to a specific different component within the concept of love. And you know, when something means everything, it means nothing. Today, our definition of love is, is changing, by the way, too. I mean, it's just, it's so confusing. Love used to refer to my dad spanking me, right? Like, that's like, it just hurts me more than it hurts you. I love you, you know, whatever. And some of you guys are like, usually spanking is really controversial. Because today, that's not loving, right? And listen, if you want to complain about it, I totally understand. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You can send me an email at elise at first.church. Please do. <laughs> I'd love to get that. It's fantastic. I want to hear what you have to say. But um, <clears throat> love today, I mean, the definition, what, what does it mean? I think today it just means mere acceptance and affirmation, which a long time ago would be totally uh, not loving, right? Because to just accept and affirm somebody, if they were doing something destructive, that would be the opposite of love. That would be hateful. Hateful is the man who looks at his friend on the path to destruction and affirms it. It's so interesting because, you know, when a word means everything, it means nothing. Like, there's so many words in our language today that it's almost Orwellian the way that they've changed. Like, what does it even mean to be racist or a white supremacist today? I'm not sure. Right, because it means, it means so much. And the problem is when it comes to love, we're dealing with the same issue where this one word refers to so much. I mean, Jesus, he coined this new concept. The Greek word for it is agape. In our language, it's just translated as love, but it's a different form of love. It's a perfect love. It's multidimensional. Agape love is, is described in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, in a passage many of you have heard before if you've ever been to a wedding. It says, uh, love is patient and kind. <clears throat> love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. This is a deep, transcendent, and transformational passage. And I think so many of you, when I read it, you heard me like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 Bible, blah, 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 blah. He's going to explain it anyway. You know, I don't really need it. And it's like sad because this is so important. And even if you did listen to it, it's like so meaningless because of the word that's in it. What does love even mean? I don't know. It means everything. You know, it's such an exhausting word because we use it to describe so much. In English, it just basically means being nice and having good feelings for somebody. That's love. It's so much more than this. It's so much more than this. I mean, agape love, this perfect love is, is so deep and so rich. You know, a um, uh, more interesting sermon I heard a while ago on this passage, a pastor told us to replace the word love with your name, you know, to really examine if you're doing that. I thought that was pretty profound. Like, John is patient, John is kind. It's like, no, I'm not. Like, not at all. Like, that's very convicting, you know. John is not jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. It's like, okay, I'm doing a better job at that. It's a good way to, like, take an inventory. And it, it shed a light on, on this passage, which is so kitsch to us. I mean, we just, we read it all the time, and it means nothing, and I thought it was interesting to do that. You know, I think the part of Jesus' love that's not talked about enough, that is encapsulated within agape love, is directional leadership. I mean, what made Jesus so impactful, it was the way that he led his 12 disciples. Why does he have a legacy today? Because of those 12 disciples. I mean, everybody else left him. It was Jesus' leadership that has transformed us. And the part of agape love that I really want to challenge us to consider today is directional leadership. 
And so what I did, and this is, this is you know, kind of a no-no, so I, I want to be clear, okay? For those of you who might be upset by this, this is not Scripture. I just wrote something that is sort of similar to Scripture that is not God's Word. It's not God's inspired Word. It's just, you know, I just, I took this passage and I changed the word love for leadership just so that we can think about it from a different perspective once, and I just want us to read it and think about it for a moment. It says, leadership is patient and kind. Leadership is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Leadership does not demand its own way. Leadership is not irritable. Leadership keeps no record of being wronged. Leadership does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Leadership never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. It's sad that love has become such an overused, confusing word. When I put leadership in there, all of a sudden that passage lights up for me. Because I understand what that concept means, and that is a part of this agape, perfect love that God gives to us. And when you think of that, of it in that context, all of a sudden, for me at least, this passage begins to light up. And specifically, what I see in here when I think about God's love for us is five keys to lead with love. And what I want to do is exposit this passage ver- or line by line with you, and I want to show you five different aspects of loving leadership that are contained within this passage, and I want to challenge you to really take an inventory. Which of these am I really good at, and which of these am I really bad at? The first thing that's revealed in this passage is loving leadership is pleasant. It says love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous, boastful, or proud, or rude. To love and lead like Jesus. You can't be a self-centered jerk. And I think a lot of us, we are. You know, and some of you are like, man, I really, I really hope that my wife is listening closely right now. Jesus, please. And I'm like, it ain't about her today. It's about you. It's about you. And I want you to think, am I pleasant? Well, I would be if she was. No, stop. It starts with you. Right? That's what leadership begins with us. Am I kind? Am I kind? You know, we all know those big bombastic leaders who, you know, build these million-dollar companies, and, you know, people don't really like them. They sell out at 55, and they're depressed and greedy and controlling with nothing left to control, and they don't really leave a great legacy. But Jesus says great leaders, they can leave a legacy for generations to come. They have an impact that's even longer, and they do this by starting with kindness, by bringing life and praise to those around them. That's who Jesus calls us to lead like. He says, great, loving, generational, impactful leaders that leave a great legacy. They are pleasant and kind. How are you as a leader? How are you with your kids? I mean, what is your first reaction? You know, with your kids, you get in the car! Why are your shoes not on yet? Right? That's what so many of us lead like. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Leadership starts off with being pleasant, with being kind. We treat people well, not like tools. Number two, loving leadership inspires, not demands. It does not demand its own way, it says. And this, to me, is the most profound part of the whole passage. I think it's the best part of the sermon. I love what Paul says here. You see, um, loving leaders, great leaders, don't have to demand that people follow them. They don't have to say, you need to do what I say because I'm the boss. No, they rarely have to do that. Great leaders, they inspire people to follow them. That's what God did. He didn't tell us we had to follow them. He inspired us to. Great leaders don't demand their own way because people are inspired to follow them. I think that this is the biggest common denominator between the great leaders I've worked for. They make me want to do what I need to do for them. They make me, I see the reason in it and I want to do it and they never have to demand. A lot of times they don't even have to tell me to do it. I already see it. That's what great leaders do. Notice this passage doesn't say, love does not get its own way. And I think a lot of us assume, well, if you're going to be loving, you just need to be a doormat. You just need to let everybody walk all over you and that's love is you just be a complete doormat. You be an enabler. You be a codependent. If they need you to do this and you do that for them and that's love. That's not love. Love doesn't demand its own way. It doesn't demand it. It inspires it. Great leaders find a way to inspire people 
to do what they want to do. And um, I think there are three ways to do this. I've kind of synthesized what inspiring leaders do into three simple steps that are not going to be on the screen, so you just got to listen close. The first way to be an inspiring leader is to bring outrageous, contagious passion to your task, whatever it is. The speed of the leader is the speed of the team. And I know that if I'm leading something, the energy and passion that I bring to it will be reflected by everybody else. We had Brotherhood the other night, and I said, I'm going to turn it up to 11 for dodgeball. Do I even like dodgeball? Nobody knows but me. But I'm going to make it seem like I like dodgeball and bring my very best for this whole group because I know the speed of the leader is the speed of the team. When I come home, I know that if I'm cranky and angry, my kids are going to be cranky and angry. If I come home and I'm like, Ableton is the worst program in the world, and I'm so mad, nothing went right, and you guys, I just need a moment to go to the bathroom for 45 minutes while I reboot and watch YouTube videos before I can deal with these kids and everything else, and blah, 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 blah. If I'm cranky, they're going to be cranky. But if I come home and I'm like, I'm so blessed to have this family, and, you know, whatever it was that happened five minutes ago, I'm choosing joy in this moment for my children, for my wife, for my family, that's what an inspiring leader does. An inspiring leader knows the speed of the leader is the speed of the team. Second thing an inspiring leader do is they, does is they, um, they bring the why in the greater vision. Say it, spray it, wheel it, deal it, and make them feel it. It is my job to paint the picture of where we're going as a family, where we're going as a church team. I want people, I don't want to have to tell them this is what you have to do. I want to show you this is why we're doing it. And I want you to say, man, I want, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of building that house. I want to be a part of building that company. I want to be a part of that family my wife is so good at this. Before we get out of the car all the time, hey, what are we doing here and why? You know, why are we going to the cabin to do ministry to our kids? Why are we having this family over to point them to the gospel of Jesus and see the Holy Spirit repair their marriage, right? We talk about this purpose all the time and both of us are constantly reminding each other why we're doing this. Kids, why are we doing this today? Why are we, we're praying that people far from God could be raised to life in Christ. We talk about it all the time. We help people see that greater picture, that greater why. And then the last thing inspiring leaders do is you have to invite people to come with you. And this is kind of creepy. Come here. That's not what I mean. Like, come here, right? That's better, okay? Um, we invite people to come with us and we tell them they have what it takes. I think a lot of times we assume like, well, if I'm an inspiring leader, people are just gonna see it and they'll ask if they can be a part of it. And that's not true. Inspiring leaders, they don't demand, but they do invite. Question. And I'm about to come into your living room right now. I'm really gonna get up in your grill in your relationships, do you inspire people or demand when you want something? Like, do you inspire your husband to come home or do you demand it? Honey, you need to be home by this time and I'm watching and I've been home all day with the kids. and You don't get home and I'm watching and I see your direction. I see where you're at. You better text when you leave. Listen, I wouldn't want to come home to that either. I'd probably stay at work doing paperwork and then I'd take the long route home, right? How about you inspire? Honey, I can't wait to see you. Mm, you know, well, then I'm putting the pedal to the metal. I am inspired. Speaking of which, men, do you inspire your wife to have sex with you or do you demand it? I have needs. It has been five days and I have needs. I'm getting angry. This is just the way that. I and listen, listen, guys, 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 you know what inspire is? It's romance. You know, try a little tenderness. Girl, you look good. I love you no matter what happens. I just want you to know you take my breath away, my heart flutters. Right? All of a sudden, things are changing. Things are changing. Do you inspire? Do you, demand, do you inspire your friends to go to the concert with you, or do you demand it? And you hung out with her, and I saw your snaps, and you didn't even give me a call. You better come to this concert because blah, blah, blah. Listen, and this is the last one, and the last one, and Coldplay, and reasons and things, and you have to come if you want to be my friend. And that's not very inspiring. Do you inspire your kids to come home from Thanksgiving? Dude, I saw that you went over to her house, son, and you better come to my house this year or it's going to be the end of the world as you know it. I will run you out of my will. It's not very, that's not very inspiring, is it? 
Nobody wants to follow a leader like that. It's not going to be a good Thanksgiving. Inspire or demand? What are you doing in your life? I think Jesus' words are really profound here. I think it's pretty easy to take an inventory of our lives. Loving leaders, they inspire, not demand. Number three, loving leadership is forgiving. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Our society messes this up so bad. We keep the longest record. If you screwed up six generations ago, then you are a person of privilege and your family and blah, blah, blah. If you said that word 50 years ago, you need to step down. You need to resign. There's no, and listen, Jesus' loving leadership is the opposite of this. Jesus, Paul is describing Jesus here. He had every reason to hold grudges. I mean, he was wronged in every way. Think about this. All his friends abandoned him. And he could have come back from the grave and been like, I'm back from the dead, but now you're all going to die because you left me. Peter, come here. I'm going to punch you in the nose three times because you denied me three times. And then I'm going to remember you in the Bible as crooked nose, Peter. And then I'm going to write you out of my will, Peter. How do you like me now, huh? You think you're going to have a mansion in heaven? I'm going to give you a studio condo in heaven. That's not what he did. He forgave immediately. He was not irritated. He was just loving and inspiring, wasn't he? And how do you do that? How do you do that? When people have run in, listen, we talked about this for the last three weeks, right? You can go back and watch, especially week number two. How do you inspire? When you, when you have a lot of unforgiveness, when you're angry, um, you do this by humbling yourself, by considering others, confessing your sin, and giving thanks, right? We talked about it. This is how you forgive. When you have hurt in your life, I don't want to just tell you, because some of you, you got some pain, and you're like, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through? And I don't. But I know what Jesus has been through, carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders. And I know that while we were still sinners, he loved us, he forgave us, he died for us by humbling himself for us. Loving leadership begins with a heart check. And I think a lot of us, if your relationships, they feel kind of distant. I mean, perhaps it's because you have no direction. Perhaps it's because there's some unforgiveness. And I know a lot of you are like, but uh, pastor, you don't understand what they did to me. Okay, I got some hurt in here. And I've forgiven. I'm not an unforgiving person, but I've got some hurt in here. And I get it. Like, I know it, but here's the thing. Hurt is the birthplace of unforgiveness. And here's what happens is you forgive somebody, you get rid of all your unforgiveness and bitterness, but if you still got hurt in your heart, you're going to have more unforgiveness babies. And you just have to keep forgiving over and over again. And, you know, every single week you do all your forgiving, and then the next week you got a Mormon boss full of babies, unforgiveness babies that you're toting around everywhere you go, just full of all your unforgiveness children. They're fighting with each other, they're yelling at each other, and you're angry at everybody. And it's like, how many times do I have to keep forgiving? It's like until you deal with the hurt. Because <clears throat> unfor- uh, hurt is the birthplace of unforgiveness. And for a lot of us, you know, that might mean, like, you got to get some real Christian counseling. you got to get some real guidance in your life. For me, what that meant is going to Jesus with my hurt and unforgiveness. Saying, Jesus, you know what? This person has hurt me in this way, and um, I, I forgive them, but I need you to help me deal with this hurt. And so often, so gently, by the power of his spirit, God has helped me deal with the hurt in my life, and he has healed me. And I want you to know you have a God in heaven who loves you and who knows your hurt and who carried your hurt with you on the cross. And um, he can bring healing to that too. Number four, uh, loving leadership seeks the truth. It says, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And I think this is a big deal, because today, you know, when we think about love, we just think about, you know, we, just, we need to accept people the way that they are. We just need to love them the way that they are. And Jesus was never like that. He lived in a messed up time. The Jewish culture at that time was really concerned about like race and class and status as the oppressor or the oppressed, right? And the Jews felt they were oppressed by the Romans and the Romans were people of privilege. And, you know, it was the the cultural narrative to hate on people who were different, to be very tribal and to feel like a victim and whatever. And um, Jesus said, that's all malarkey. 
Like your status as a victim doesn't define you. Your race or class doesn't define you. We are all one in Christ Jesus, and people are judged by the content of their character and by the grace of God in their life, not by the color of their skin or their position or class. And today, I think there's a lot of extremists who have fallen back into that same religion on the far left and far right. Great leaders, they care about truth. You see, I think we are so rich and so insulated today that we can ignore facts, but eventually that's going to catch up to us. And great leaders have the courage to look at the people they love and say, I want to lead for generations to a place of calm waters and green grass. I still remember when the great leaders in my life, like my dad, said, John, something doesn't come from nothing, and intelligent design doesn't come from no intelligence. When they pointed me to the truth, when they showed me the archaeological, historical, and scientific data for Jesus as the one true God, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only hope for the next life. And that is so meaningful, and I think that's what great leaders do. We don't just say, oh, whatever makes you happy, son. We say, hey, I love you enough to point you to the truth. Number five, loving leaders never give up. Love never gives up and never loses faith. It is always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. You know, I think a lot of people think of Jesus as meek and mild, but he was tenacious and ferocious and strong and wild. Never gave up. Never gave up. Never gives up. And I think this is what the best leaders are. And a lot of people say, well, it's... Uh, that's pretty easy for a guy like you, Pastor. You just, you know, you're a naturally disciplined guy. I mean, you never give up. And I want you to know that, that being tenacious and not giving up isn't a gift. It's a decision that you make every morning. You know how many mornings I wake up, specifically Monday morning, and I'm like, ah, I don't have a sermon. I have no idea. I need to call the elder, search team, assemble. I'm done. I quit. That's what I want to do. So many of us in our lives. You face a Monday. You face a day. What am I going to do tomorrow? I don't even know, and we quit. Loving leaders, they know that we don't quit because Jesus didn't quit on us. And I don't know where your marriage is at. And I don't know the pain that you're enduring. And I don't know like, what it's like with your kids or what it's like with your sister who said the most hurtful things at the table or what it is with so-and-so who said this stuff to you. I want you to know, loving leaders, they don't quit. They don't enable, but they don't quit. They don't quit. And I want to challenge you, those of you who have relationships that are on the ropes, to not be a quitter either. Because love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. Loving leaders follow Jesus by being pleasant, inspiring, not demanding, by forgiving, by seeking the truth, and by never giving up. What area in your life are you great at doing these things? Are you great at being a loving leader? In what areas of your life do you have some space to grow? Because if you want great contentment and lasting relationships, it begins with following the loving leadership of Jesus. Jesus' words are right, right, right here. Healing comes when we lead like Jesus, which means leading with love. It means humbly laying down our lives and submitting to the needs of others. And I want you to know, um, I really have a wonderful marriage, like I do. Chris and I have a great marriage. And um, we are two of the most incompatible people on earth. Like, I want, like, we are so radically different. Anybody who knows us, like Kristen is kind, sensitive. Oh, she's like very sensitive. And she is compassionate and loving, and, and she does not, she's not direct. You know, she likes to beat around the bush a lot. I am like, we're going to cut that thing to the heart. We're going to do it. I'm going to say exactly what I think with no sugar. I don't even like sugar, puppies, or ice cream, right? Not compatible at all. But we have a wonderful relationship. You know why? Because we're foxhole buddies. Because we follow Jesus as our loving leader. And when you have spent some time in a foxhole together. Some of the strongest bonds in life come from that. 
and we have this shared direction and purpose in our life. And I want you to know I love my marriage to Kristen Hill because she is my companion. She is my battle buddy. We're in this together. And each day we come together and we talk about how God has been working in our lives and we talk about how we're battling for God and his kingdom together. Our children, we rejoice together. We're praying together that God's kingdom would be built on earth through us. What are your relationships like? I wanna challenge you to ask some questions. I've got two questions, lots of sub-questions because that's what I do. First question with three sub-questions. What is the goal of your relationships? When you actually think about your closest relationships, do you have a goal? What is the actual goal? Like, think about it. Is it a good goal? Because I think a lot of us, like, what is the goal with our close relationships? I just want him to love me. I just want to be loved. Guaranteed disappointing goal, isn't it? I just want to be loved. Like, that is not going to fill you for a lifetime. That is like, I'll be okay today. Some, I just want to not fight at home. That's all I want. I just want to come home, be unmolested in my house. I just want to not fight. Also, I think kind of a lame goal for a relationship. And nothing makes you more empty than doing nothing, right? And this is so many, I just want peace. I just want to, you know, is it a good goal? Does it really matter? In this life and in the scope of eternity, there's a lot of us, we've got these goals. It's like, it doesn't even matter. Like, it doesn't matter. I want a big house. I want this. I want, does it matter? Is this really what you want your legacy to be? They built a big boomer mansion that they sold for a fire sale when the preferences of the next generation change because who wants a 14,000 square foot mega mansion? Lastly, I'm actually living for the stated purpose of my life because I think there's a lot of families who are like, we're living for God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have a verse above our door. We love God. We go to church 20 weeks a year and kind of really don't talk about God at all. We're not involved. We don't read our Bibles. We don't really pray together. I don't really pray with my kids. I don't point my kids. Listen, that's a great way to all but guarantee that your kids will not follow Christ. Because we have these beautiful stated goals, and I know a lot of us here would claim to follow Jesus, but when you look at the totality of your life and you really sum it up, are you living for what you say you're living for? So I would bet that there's a lot of us who are struggling with real discontentment, and you've got kids, and you've got the dream, and it's everything that you've ever wanted but it's bringing you nothing that you hoped for because nothing makes you feel emptier than doing nothing. Live for something that matters. Number two, do I have relationships that have no loving leadership? Here's a simple truth. The one true loving leader is Jesus Christ. And I really believe that no matter how broken your relationship is with people on earth, the true fix and the true contentment comes from following Jesus as the true loving leader. I think there's lots of us that believe in God, but the devil believes in God. That doesn't make the devil a Christian. I think that satisfaction and contentment on earth begins with fixing our relationship with Jesus, which means it doesn't just mean believing in him. It means believing him to the extent that, that he is now our leader and forgiver. And his loving leadership defines and guides and illuminates the decisions that we make on earth. His leadership through his word the Bible, that's what defines us. And I think a lot of us, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we decided that we were going to follow Jesus as leader and forgiver. But if you look at your life and the condition of your relationships today, man, he is not your loving leader. And I would just challenge you to come back to him today and say, you know what? Me and my family, we're back. For better or for worse, we're back, Jesus. And we're following you in all things at all times. Because I believe that God created us for more than this earth. He created us for an eternal hope and purpose that is only found in Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to ask you to stand your feet. 
I'd like to close in a word of prayer. I'd ask you to have a prayer with me. God in heaven, I thank you for the people of this church here and in Hebron at the jail and online. God, I ask that today, because of your gospel and your loving leadership, you would bring contentment and meaning and value and worth to our relationships generation after generation. Would you build a legacy in our lives that speaks to our children and our grandchildren, a legacy of faith and hope and love and grace because of your gospel thriving in our life? Would you make us loving leaders, Lord, when people interact with us, would they feel and see your great commission purpose in our lives? Help us to turn our eyes back to you. And with everything we have, give us the vision and courage to lead our families, our loved ones, and our friends to the only thing that really matters, which is following you as our loving leader, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. All God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together, guys.